Amen. All right, take your Bibles tonight and turn to Matthew chapter 16. While you're turning over there, can you remember what we've talked about so far when it comes to the false doctrines in the Catholic Church? Do you remember what we talked about in the first, the first thing that was wrong with the Catholic Church? False doctrine number one. Do you remember? Ah, uh, you, you got a little hint. That wasn't the that wasn't the first one though. Johan? Yes, it's the only true church. Very good. Number two was the priesthood. Number three, false doctrine. Number three. Do you remember what we talked about last week? Really, you could sum it up in one word. No fair, Lydia. You're looking. Brian. Tradition is equal with the Bible. Very good. So tonight we're going to actually talk about uh, their belief about Peter which really has a lot to do with the papacy, the Pope. Uh, so this week and next week are going to kind of be uh, one long one that's split into two, but not. So uh, probably get a bookmark, or if you have a ribbon in your Bible, put it there in Matthew chapter 16, because we're going to come back to this several times. But we're also going to look at a few other verses as well. See, a, a church is not a good church because a lot of people think it is. Size does not matter. I actually was just talking to somebody this week who asked me about the Catholic Church and said, well, what about the Catholics? Don't they go to heaven? And I said, no, not if they believe, the, not if they believe what the Catholic Church teaches. And this guy that I was talking to said, but it's such a big church. There's a lot of Catholics. I said, there are. And there's a lot of Catholics who are on their way to hell because they're believing what the Catholic Church says instead of what the Bible says. Size does not make something right or wrong, right? Um, in fact, the largest branch of Christianity in the world, which is Catholicism, is, is terribly wrong about a whole bunch of things. We just listed three of them. We're going to talk about a whole lot more of them as we get into it. But tonight, we're going to discuss another one of those things, and that's the, their belief about the Apostle Peter, and then obviously what flows from that. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church is structured in a very top-down manner. Um, you have the Pope at the top, and obviously the, the Pope is the boss in every sense of the word. And then so next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the institution of the papacy, uh, but much of the Roman Catholic Church's approach to the, to the papacy lies in its belief about the Apostle Peter. And so tonight, I'm going to explain to you what the Roman Catholic Church believes about Peter and then show you that the Bible doesn't say anything about what they believe about Peter. So, first of all, then, is the Roman Catholic Church's position on Peter. And the key to their belief hinges on this passage in Matthew chapter 16. So, we're going to start there in verse number 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his, asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Here's the key. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed 
in heaven. Then charged to his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, here's the, the confraternity version is the Catholic Bible, the Catholic version of the Bible. Um, and they have kind of similar to what we have when it comes to commentaries that are describing different passages and whatever else. The confraternity adds this as the interpretation. The rock was Peter. The gates of hell, hostile evil powers. Their aggressive force will struggle in vain against the church. She shall never be overcome. She is indefectible. And since she has the office of teacher, and since she would be overcome if error prevailed, she is infallible. Keys, a symbol of authority. Peter has the power to admit into the church and to exclude therefrom. Nor is he merely the porter. He has the complete power within the church. To bind and to loose seems to have been used by the Jews in the sense of to forbid or to permit. But the present context requires a more comprehensive meaning. In heaven, God ratifies the decision which Peter makes on earth in the name of Christ. You see what they're saying here? Peter has not just the keys. He's just not allowing people in or out. Peter can say, you're allowed to come in. You're not allowed to come in. They are conferring a lot of power to Peter and therefore to the church, but to this one person within the church, especially, and we're going to talk about this at quite length, when they say that the popes are all successors of Peter, that means the popes have the right to excommunicate somebody, to kick somebody out of heaven or say that they're never going to get into heaven. They have the right to put somebody into heaven if they want to. They have the keys to the kingdom. Now, obviously, the, the spiritual ignorance and the arrogance of that position is breathtaking when you stop and think about what they're actually saying. Well, not to be outdone, Cardinal Gibbons, he, he later became an archbishop of Baltimore. He explained it this way. The Catholic Church teaches that our Lord conferred upon St. Peter the first place of honor and jurisdiction in the government of his whole church, and that the same spiritual supremacy has always resided in the popes or bishops of Rome as being the successors of St. Peter. Consequently, to be true followers of Christ, all Christians, both among the clergy and laity, must be in communion with the See of Rome, where Peter rules in the person of his successor. What does the Bible have to say about that? A whole lot, we find out. So let's look at what the actual interpretation of Matthew chapter 16 is, because honestly, if we can understand that, uh, then that makes this passage very much more clear. Now, there's a whole lot of other passages that we're going to look at as well. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 16, but uh, go ahead and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, magically, the Roman church finds here the basis for the papacy in Matthew chapter 16. Peter is considered to have been the rock of the church. So the supposed successors of Peter, which is all the Roman popes, form the foundation of the church for all the ages. Now let's look at a, at a few, I guess you could call them considerations in contrast to what the Roman Catholic Church says about that. Number one, the Lord Jesus Christ was not saying that he would build the church upon Peter. There is in the Greek a play on words, if you will. And again, our English language really is, is not um, as complete, if you, would, if you can say that, as the Greek. Um, and, and I know I use this example a decent amount of times when we talk about that, but if you think about the word love, right? I say, I love my wife and I love pizza, but I mean two different things when I'm saying that, right? I can say, I love you like a brother, right? But I don't mean the same thing when I'm saying I love my wife or I love pizza, Right? And so in the Bible, there are actually four different words for love in the Greek language. Now, in our English language, we only have one word for that. 
But there's a differentiation between all those different types of love when you're looking at it in the Greek language. And what we find here is kind of like a play on words when you go back into the Greek language. Um, Thou art Peter, which the name Peter meant, it was Petros, which meant little stone, right? Or little rock. And upon this rock, when he's using the term rock in that way, he's talking about it as Petra. Not Petros, but Petra, which is a solid rock mass or a foundation. He says, you're Peter, you're the little rock, but on this rock, I'll build my church. He does not promise to build his church upon Peter. He's promising to build it on himself. In fact, Peter himself was careful to tell us that the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. If anybody would have the ability or right to say he was not talking about me being the foundation of the church, it would be Peter because he was there. Now, there were others, but he was talking directly to Peter. Look what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6, Peter speaking. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. What's a chief cornerstone? That's the rock. That's the foundation that he's talking about. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 32, you don't need to turn over there unless you want to, but says this, for who is God save the Lord, and who is a rock save our God? In both the Old and the New Testaments, it's God himself who is the believer's rock, the foundation, the security, the, the protection. 30 times in the Old Testament, God is called the rock. Five times in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is called a rock. And I've got those passages. We're not going to take time to look at that, but only deity himself could be the church's rock and foundation. And, and that's exactly what the Lord Jesus was promising in Matthew chapter 16. The second thing about that, and the second thing about the interpretation of this, of this passage, is that the Roman Catholic interpretation of Matthew 16 is strictly contrary to the pattern of the early church as testified by the book of Acts and the epistles. Peter was simply not a pope. Turn, over to, turn back to Matthew chapter 16, because I want to look at another verse. Now, the Latin writing on the, the fish-shaped hat that's worn by the pope has a, uh, has a, um, a Latin phrase on it. I'm probably going to say it wrong, so I have it. I put the next slide up there if you would for me, Lydia, please. Vicarius Philei Dei, if that's how you say it, I'm not sure. But it means substitute for the Son of God. That's what he wears on his hat, that phrase, substitute for the Son of God. Now, the Apostle Peter no doubt would have cringed in horror at the very thought of taking a title that said substitute for the Son of God. Number three. The church is built not upon the person of Peter, but upon the testimony of Peter. If you look what, what Peter said in Matthew chapter 16, Peter had just testified in verse number 16, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That testimony is the focus of Matthew 16, 17 through 19. That's what Jesus was talking about. He said, nobody told you that. Only God could have given you that. And he's talking about the testimony. It's Jesus Christ. He is the center. He's the foundation. He's the head. He is the all for the church. We see that. Uh, we see in that the Lord Jesus Christ completed this scene in Matthew chapter 16 by charging the disciples that they should go and tell no man that he was the Christ. Right? I mean, why would he do that if he wasn't trying to say that he was going to be building the rock upon himself? Now, the keys, number four, the keys of the kingdom of heaven were not given to Peter alone. They were given to the other disciples as well. 
And if you see in verse 19, it says, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, at face value, it does look like he's given Peter these keys, and he's, he's given him the power to let somebody into heaven or the power to keep somebody out of heaven. In fact, the confraternity version again says this, Peter has the power to admit into the church and to exclude therefrom. Nor is he merely the porter. He has complete power within the church to bind and loose. Seems to have been used by the Jews in the sense to forbid or to permit. But the present context requires a more comprehensive meaning. In heaven, God ratifies the decision which Peter makes on earth in the name of Jesus Christ. We read that in the, in the previous passage, but that's ex this is exactly where it's talking about that. He's been given the keys, so he is, has the right to let anybody in or keep anybody out of heaven that he wants to. But that power was not just entrusted to Peter. Even the scribes and the Pharisees had that. In fact, just turn a couple pages over to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, and obviously Jesus is, is, uh, is uh, not condemning, is not the right word, but um, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for? Woe unto you. What is it? It's not condemning them, but it's uh, chastising them, maybe. Uh, but Matthew chapter 23, in verse number 13, he says this, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Matthew chapter 23, a couple of, pages, a couple of verses before that, in verse number 2, saying, the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. What he's saying in verse 13, if you go back and look at that, is they, they're, they're keeping people out of heaven. The, the scribes and the Pharisees had that ability to do that. After Jesus' resurrection, he's, he spoke to all of the disciples in John chapter 20. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now, it sounds like he's, I mean, that he's, he's definitely not talking specifically to Peter. In fact, if you want to go back and look at that verse that I just read, it's in John chapter 20, verse 23, because it, it, it kind of has a lot to hinge on that, right? But John chapter 20, verse 23, he's not just talking to Peter, he's talking to all the apostles. That expression means that the scribes and Pharisees, in that they had the word of God in their hands, had the power in declaring the truth of the word of God to open heaven Again, it's, it, it, in not declaring the truth of the word of God, they had the power of withholding heaven, right? So that's what it's saying. That's what Jesus is saying to them. The, the key to the kingdom is the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believeth. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. For Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Peter used the key of the gospel to open the door for the Jews on the day of Pentecost. Right? You can turn to Acts chapter 2 if you want to. In fact, go ahead and do that. Turn to Acts chapter 2 because I want to I show you another passage in Acts chapter 10 here in just a second. But that's, that's what he's talking about. Opening the keys is giving them the gospel. He did it to a large group on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the key to heaven. Right? That's the gospel. And he's giving them the key. He also used the key of the gospel in Acts chapter 10. He was opening the door of salvation to the Gentiles when he preached Jesus to Cornelius. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. 
The New Testament does not show Peter exercising special authority beyond that. It was authority that was exercised by all the disciples. In Matthew chapter 16, the Lord Jesus Christ is not making Peter the first pope. It's, it's, he's reaffirming that he himself is the rock, that he is the head of the church, and that Peter's testimony of Christ is the key whereby the door to salvation and the kingdom of God would be open unto everybody that believes. That's what he was talking about to Peter. And, and the thing is, okay, if you go back and look at Matthew chapter 16 and you see just verse number 18, yeah, you could get that out of that, right? But you have to take every verse in context of the passage and you have to take every passage in context of the whole Bible, right? There's, there's several verses that make it look like you have to be baptized for salvation, right? If you were to literally specifically look at that one verse, you could say that. But then you start looking at the passage and you start realizing that's not what he was trying to say by the way that he said that in that passage. And then if you look at the, whole, at, at the New Testament as a whole, he's definitely not saying that you need to be baptized for salvation, right? And the same thing is true when it comes to Peter being declared the first pope. If you just looked at verse 18, maybe you could get that out of it. But if you look at the verses before it and the verses after it, you can see that what he's, what he's telling Peter is, you are affirming the truth. You are saying that the gospel is the truth, and that is the foundation that I'm going to build on. Here's the third thing. Well, let me see. Is that the third thing? Uh, it's the second thing, but first one was to look at the actual interpretation of Matthew chapter 16, so maybe this is the first one, but Jesus never appointed Peter the Pope, let alone appointed his successors. So I, I think by Matthew chapter 16, we've, we've established that Jesus was not making Peter the first Pope. Not only did Jesus not make Peter the first Pope, he never established the successors of Peter as popes either. And if you can turn, turn back to Matthew chapter 16, the rock on which the church is founded it's, is not Peter. As we mentioned, it is Peter's confession of faith in verse number 16 that he's talking about is the rock, the foundation. But Peter was the first of the apostles, apostles to really to grasp and to publicly state not just that Jesus was Israel's Messiah, but that he was divine, that he was the Son of God, that he was God in the flesh. And in the original language, there's a clear change in gender when you look at that passage, and that indicates a change in subject between Peter and rock. You are Peter, I am the rock. And honestly, if you, if you without even going to the original language, if you just look at that passage, you can understand that, you know, that's what Jesus was saying. Thou art Peter, okay, you, and this, okay? If I said this, Bible, does that indicate that you're holding it in your hand or I'm holding it in my hand? This Bible. I'm holding it in my hand, right? Versus that Bible. Am I holding it in my hand or are you holding it in your hand? You're holding it in yours, right? This and that. It's just like here and there. It indicates whether you're talking about something that's right next to you or something that's away from you. So when you say, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, you can tell that the subject is changing and that the gender of, that, of those words are changing without even having to go into the original Greek language to see that, right? But that's exactly what he was talking about. And by the way, if Peter was the rock and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against him, how come in just a couple short days... Peter was about to deny Jesus Christ and be defeated by hell, right? Thou, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, Peter. 
but the gates of hell prevailed against you and you denied Jesus Christ three times? And kind of contrary, right? Matthew chapter 16 and verse 33, verse 23, but he turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Oh, wait, he just established Peter as the first pope, and then he told him to get behind him, Satan. <laughs> You're about to deny me three times, right? How is that the gates of hell are not prevailing against Peter? Here's number two. Peter never claimed or exercised any authority over anyone in the early church. Turn over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Yes, Peter did claim to be an apostle, but Peter never claimed authority over anyone in the early church. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. So he did claim to be an apostle, which gave him some authority, obviously, but he's, he's not exercising any authority over these people. He explicitly rejected using that position or any supposed position to dictate to the church. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the suffering, sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Peter is not assuming any ecclesiastical authority over these people. He's saying, you and I have the same position, and what I'm saying to you is, this is what we should do. Don't lord over the flock. Don't take that position of preeminence. Don't, don't do it for, for greed or wealth or any of those other things. He puts himself on the same level as the people he is addressing. If he was claiming authority as the pope, he would say, I'm the Pope, I'm the rock, I'm the foundation of the church, you do what I say, I have this authority, right? He explicitly rejected worship that was directed toward himself. In fact, we see that, turn over to Acts chapter 10. I think this is a pretty significant passage if you want to talk about Peter uh, not claiming authority as a Pope or as anything else. Acts chapter 10 and verse 25. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up saying, stand up, I myself also am a man. Well, it's a little bit different in contrast compared to what they do to the Pope today, right? They bow down and kiss the Pope's feet. They bow down and, and do what, you know, all this other stuff that, that lifts the Pope up, right? Peter said, get up, get up. I'm just a man too. We're, on the, we're the same. Don't, don't fall down and worship me. Get up. Get up. I'm just a man. Yet in Rome, the Pope's ring is kissed. All the people are instructed to kneel at the Pope's feet. They kiss his feet. They kiss his hands. They worship him. In fact, turn over to Galatians chapter 2. If, if, if Peter is claiming uh, or exercising authority over those in the early church, then this is certainly an awkward situation. Galatians chapter number 2 because Paul very harshly confronted Peter when Peter was in the wrong, right? Verse number 11, Galatians chapter 2, verse number 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that, certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. 
And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas, who was also carried away with their dissimulation, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of a Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? I mean, Peter, Peter was confronted by Paul. Paul. Paul didn't hold anything back, right? Now, here's, here's a... Uh, an interesting quote from a book called Roman Catholicism by uh, Lorraine Botner. I mentioned this last week. I, I quoted her last week, but she said this. In other words, Paul gave the Holy Father a dressing down before them all, accusing him of not walking uprightly in the truth of the gospel. Surely that was no way to talk to a pope. Imagine anyone today, even a cardinal, taking upon himself to rebuke and instruct a real pope with such language. Just who was Paul that he should rebuke the vicar of Christ for unchristian conduct. If Peter was the chief, it was Paul's duty and the duty of the other apostles to recognize him as such and to teach only what he approved. Obviously, Paul did not regard Peter as infallible in faith and morals or recognize any supremacy on his part, which is a great point. If Peter is being rebuked in front of everybody by Paul, then that's an awkward situation if Peter was the pope and was the leader of the church and was exercising his authority as the leader of the church. Right? I have a couple other points to share with you regarding this matter of Peter's superiority or really the lack thereof, but I think they'll fit better if we talk about them next week when we're talking about the actual Pope. So we'll, we'll put those off. Number three, Paul made no mention of Peter in his letter to Rome. And I think this is interesting. This is, this is a, uh, a, a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think this is really interesting because, well, let me just read it to you. According to Roman church tradition, Peter reigned as Pope in Rome for 25 years, from 42 to 67 AD. It is generally agreed that Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome was written in the year 58 AD, at the very height of Peter's alleged episcopacy, episcopacy there. So what we're saying here, what she's saying here is that uh, for 25 years, Peter reigned in Rome. Paul wrote to the, to the Christians in Rome in A.D. 58, which would have been right in the middle of that 25 years of Peter's reign in Rome. Paul did not address his letter to Peter, as he should have done if Peter was in Rome and the head of all the churches. No, the letter was addressed simply to the saints in Rome. How strange for a missionary to write to a church and not mention the pastor. And if Peter had been the most prominent minister in the land, as allegedly was the bishop of Rome, such an affront would be all the more inexcusable. If Peter was there and had been there for 16 years, why was it necessary for Paul to go at all? Especially since in his letter he says that he does not build on another's foundation. This indicates clearly that Peter was not then in Rome and that he had not been there, that in fact Paul was writing this letter because no apostle had yet been in Rome to clarify the gospel to them and to establish them in the faith. And again, had Peter been in Rome prior to or at the time when Paul arrived there as a prisoner in 61 AD, Paul could not have failed to mention him, for in the epistles written from there during his imprisonment, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, he gives quite a complete list of his fellow workers in Rome, and Peter's name is not among them. It's a pretty strong argument. I mean, nobody can prove it 100% because we, don't, we weren't there, but you certainly would think that Paul would mention that Peter was there in Rome as the head of all the churches if he was in Rome. I mean, yes, he, he withstood Peter to the face, but he and Peter got along just fine, especially when it came to the uh, propagation of the gospel. 
Here's another thing that I think is really interesting, and I'm not going to take the time. I'll give you a couple references here if you want them to, to go back and look at later. Uh, but this is a strong indication that Peter was not a pope. Peter was a married man. Uh, Roman Catholic popes are not allowed to be married, but Peter definitely had a wife. And there are three passages, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 14, Mark chapter 1 and verse 30, and both of those actually are talking about the same account where Peter's wife's mother was sick and dying, right? And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5, it mentions Peter's wife again. Um, but that becomes an important fact when we consider the, 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 the Roman popes claims to be successors or followers of Peter. Why are they not allowed to be married? If Peter was married and he was the pope, then why are they not allowed to? Or if Peter was the pope and not allowed to be married, it's very clear that he was. So you can't have it both ways, right? When it comes to the pope's celibacy, we see again uh, Rome's deadly habit of, of changing the pattern of the early church and, and, of course, then making it so that the scripture is ineffective by their traditions. So either Peter was not the pope because he was married or he was married and they changed it by tradition over the course of all those years to say that it was okay to not be married or that they should not be married. But here's another thing that's interesting, and I have another quote from the same book, which is just, it's a, it's a wealth of information, but Peter never had a treasury either, right? I've never read in scripture that Peter asked and accepted gifts of money to gather unto himself a treasury of silver and gold to be called the treasury of St. Peter, as the Pope has. In Acts 3, 6, Peter said, silver and gold have I none. In Acts 8, 20, Peter refused to sell his spiritual gift for money. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Rome, though, sells spiritual blessings and gifts. Here's another one, a quote from a different book called Protestants, Catholics, and the Word of God. Peter never wore a crown, right? Coronation day is crowning day. Peter's coronation day was never during his earthly life. He will receive a crown when the Lord comes again, as he said in his first epistle. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. The Catholic Dictionary says concerning the crowning of the Pope, the earliest representation of the tiara with three crowns is found in an effigy of Benedict XII, who died in 1342. The first, the first circlet symbolized the Pope's universal episcopate. The second, his supremacy of jurisdiction. And the third, his temporal supremacy. It is placed on his head at his coronation by the second cardinal deacon with the words, Receive the tiara adorned with three crowns, and know that thou art father of princes and kings, ruler of the world, vicar of our Savior Jesus Christ. Is this not blasphemous arrogance? The book asks. So let's ask this question, and we'll be done. Turn over to Re Revelation chapter 21. I, I'm going to have you look at a couple different passages here. Did Peter have a, success, a successor? Well, this comes from uh, another book that asks some great questions or, or really gives a chronology. This is, this is a book called The Rock by Tom Eldens, written in 1986. But he says this, We often hear of the Pope referred to as Peter's successor, a claim which was reflected in one of the titles assumed by Pope John Paul II. This is based on the assertion that Peter was the first bishop of Rome from A.D. 42 to 67. But what does the Bible reveal about this claim? Well, in Galatians 1, 16 through 18, Paul writes that three years after his conversion... AD 34, he met Peter in Jerusalem, AD 37. In Galatians 2, 1 through 9, Paul writes that he again went to Jerusalem 14 years later, AD 51, where he met Peter. Find that in verse number 9 of Galatians chapter 1. 
Paul's epistle to the Romans was written from Corinth about AD 60, and chapter 16 has greetings to several members of the church at Rome by name, but makes no mention of Peter. This is a strange omission that Peter had indeed been bishop there. Paul's letter to the Colossians was written from Rome about AD 64. At the end of chapter 4, he sends greetings from several people, including Luke, the beloved physician. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends greetings to Marcus. Verse 11, Paul writes, these only are my fellow workers, but makes no mention of Peter among them. So, according to that chronology, was Peter even in Rome? And did he have a successor? Because here, in AD 41, Peter was at Joppa, where he had a vision of the unclean animals. AD 44, he was imprisoned by Herod and miraculously set free. AD 52, he was at Jerusalem disputing against circumcision. He wrote his first epistle from Babylonia about AD 60, the same verse stating that Mark was with him at the time. In Paul's letter to Timothy from Rome, AD 66, shortly before his execution, he writes in verse 11, only Luke is with me. Timothy was the first pastor at Ephesus and Mark was with him, confirming Colossians 4.10. Peter was therefore with Timothy and Mark in Asia Minor and Babylonia, but never at Rome with Paul. His mission was to the circumcision, the Jews and the other 10 tribes whose location he referred to in 1 Peter 1.1. So we see that the man that the Catholic Church says was the first Roman pope never ministered at Rome. See, there's no, there's, there's no record in the New Testament that Peter's apostolic office was passed to anybody else after his death either. Now, that's, that's assuming that Peter was the first pope. So let's take that assumption for a second. Let's just say that we're, all, we're wrong about all of this and Peter really was the first pope. Where do we find in the Bible this idea of apostolic succession? The Roman Catholic idea of apostolic succession is purely human conjecture. They made it up. They just said, well, if Peter was the first pope and all of these other guys are popes, then it makes sense that Peter passed on this succession to all the rest of the popes. But where did that come from? They made it up. They said it. So they had to make it true. Or they had to, make it, they had to prove it somehow. There, there was only 12 apostles in the special sense, and that's all there ever will be. Revelation 21, verse number 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Right? Why do we not see all the rest of all the popes established in, the, in, the, in that? In the wall of the eternal city of the redeemed, there's only 12 foundations. Only 12. And in these foundations are written the names of the 12 apostles. Again, only 12. Not all the rest of the popes have ever come after that. Peter was not the head of the church in the first century. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I want to look at two more passages here in Ephesians chapter 1 and we're done. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22. Because this is what it all comes down to. Okay? Peter himself very plainly stated that he was not the rock. He was not the foundation of the church. He was not what it was all about. I'm just a man like you are. Don't worship me. Don't treat me any different. Right? Yes, I'm an apostle, but that's where, that's where the authority ends. Peter was not the head of the church in the first century. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22 and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's about as plain as it can be that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. No man on earth today is the head of the church. Go a couple pages later in Ephesians chapter 5. Doesn't get any plainer than this. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now, 
This is the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians was written probably 30 years after Jesus Christ went to heaven, and he's still the head of the church. He didn't turn that over to Peter. He didn't say, you're standing in my stead. He didn't say, you are... You have the power of Jesus Christ. He didn't say any of those things that they try to say about Peter. Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. And even if all this is wrong, even if all this is wrong and Peter was a pope, there is zero indication in the Bible that the power would be transmitted from him to anybody else that came after him. Nothing. Nothing gives us any indication in the Bible that Peter transferred that power to anybody. Truth is that with the passing of the apostles, their place as guides for the early church was taken by an inspired, infallible, complete word of God. We had the apostles. They wrote the word of God. They breathed. I mean, they, they wrote as God breathed. This is our apostle, if you will. I'm not saying that the Bible is, is, is an apostle, but we don't need the apostles anymore because the apostles gave us everything that Christ needed us to have in the complete finished work of the word of God. There's no need for a successor. There's no mention anywhere in the Bible about a successor. And Peter's own testimony himself makes it pretty clear. He's not the pope. He's not the foundation of the church. He's not the leader of the church. He's not the head of the church. And there is no successor that came after him. So then... We're going to talk next week about the Pope, the papacy. The very idea of the papacy is wrong from the start because they're wrong about Peter. Peter was never a Pope. So there is no position of the papacy that was established in the Word of God. They're wrong about that based on Matthew chapter 16 and then all the rest of the passages that we find from Peter and from Paul and from everybody else. But we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the Pope next week. And just show you how blasphemous, honestly, a lot of these things are that uh, the Pope claims to be. A lot of the things, a lot of the power that the Pope claims to have, power that belongs only to Jesus Christ himself. And a position that only Jesus Christ himself belongs in. Not the Pope. Not the Pope. Certainly not Peter or any successor after him. Well, let's pray. We'll be finished for tonight. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for... The opportunity we have to study the Word of God. I thank you for the freedom. I pray that you'd help us to fight for that freedom. And I, I, I pray that you'd help us to stand on the truths that we find only in the Word of God. And I pray that you'd help us to understand the truth and that, that we might be able to win some to Jesus Christ because of that understanding, because of the knowledge that we have of the Bible and of the gospel. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.